This is an ABC podcast. Mother Earth, she can be fast and she can be slow. And so today, science friction is a little bit of both. The flea jumps swiftly, lives for a few months, reproduces. Its little armoured body is made from atoms that originated in exploding stars. And its origins can be traced to the first insects and back in time all the way to the first cell. Individuals and their species come and go. Whole groups of organisms rise and fall as the planet churns and quakes. The cell has remained the irreducible unit of life for 100 quadrillion seconds, modified into bacteria and crawling amoebas and multiplied into bristlecone pines and the bodies of whales and will persist until the sun runs out of fuel and melts the biosphere, returning Earth to the purity of its geological beginnings. Nicholas Money studies fungi for a living. He says fungi, I say fungi, potato, potato, tomato, tomato. Anyway, the yeasts, rusts, mildews, moulds and mushrooms of the world, the wonderful world that is. He's a, a professor at the University of Miami in Oxford, Ohio. And he's also author of a stack of popular science books that dive headfirst into the mystique and marvels of the microbial world. His latest book is called Nature Fast, Nature Slow, How life works from fractions of a second to billions of years. It's a whole lot bigger than microbes and it's a really beautiful meditation on the expansiveness of time and the richness of biology. He's my guest this week on Science Friction. I'm Natasha Mitchell. Let's kick back and have our minds blown together at the end of this very strange year where time certainly took on very weird dimensions. You explore the entire timetable of the universe in this book from slivers of a second to billions of years. And, and I mean, I guess to put time into perspective, some of us will live for three billion seconds. But as you suggest, our genes are the most recent versions of DNA instructions that have been actually touring Earth for three billion years. So in that way, do we embody all the timescales? Yeah, that's that, that. That I think that's very striking, isn't it? That mm. you know, humans live live perhaps for three billion seconds, and yet biology has existed for three billion years. I mean, this is if, if you if you fudge the numbers, they work out perfectly. <laughs> and and is 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 there wisdom in that? That our lives are so fleeting, three billion seconds, although that's quite a few seconds. Is there comfort from that comes from the idea too that we're part of this? evolutionary experiment, this cosmic experiment that's been going on for at least three billion years on this planet, and probably is, has happened in a similar vein elsewhere in the, in the cosmos. But I, I, I am fascinated by, the, by that idea that if we look at human genes, those that control really, really basic mechanisms, mm. like the metabolism of sugars, for example, they're pretty much the same in us and bacteria. So yes, we, we carry this signature from the earliest beginnings of of biological time. Yeah, I, I think that makes me feel a little bit self-satisfied and maybe a little bit less terrified of my non-existence. <laughs> Although it seems that seconds are the time scale that our minds seem to 
most connect with? And I wonder if there's a biological imperative there. So the imperative is, is, is survival. This is something that's been judged by natural selection to work well for us. But if you think about the timescale on which we consciously live, out, live our lives, we're very, very attentive to seconds. I mean, we can count, count off the seconds and be aware of the starting point and the finishing point. But if you try and count minutes, we're already lost. Yeah. And although our nervous systems respond to things that happened on the, the millisecond timescale, really in terms of our awareness, we're, yeah, we're, we're stuck on seconds. So we miss all of the action that occurs in fractions of a second, these things like flea jumps and movements of fungal spores. And, but then similarly, we're really out of touch with all of these things that happen on a longer time scale, the way that evolution has played out. I mean, yeah, we can understand it scientifically, but the timescales of millions of years or hundreds of millions of years, this is just sort of incomprehensible to us. I think. So yeah, we're stuck on the seconds. There's good reason for this because of course our predators also work on that same time scale and we need to make decisions and seconds to seconds. Yeah, very, very important. Our hearts beat at the scale of seconds. And I guess that's an enduring time scale, isn't it? A kind of the pulse of the heart. Nature pulses to the beat of seconds, yeah. But a beating heart is actually incredibly slow, and this is a book about nature fast and nature slow, and you start with the very, 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 very fast. I mean, faster than, well, an example you include is a hummingbird beats its wings 50 times per second. So that's one up and down sweep in 20 milliseconds. Now, that's fast, but it's nowhere near the fastest, is it? No, I mean, the, if, if we think about a, a movement of a biological structure, the fastest movement we're aware of, or actually that we've, we've managed to clock using high-speed video cameras, is the jellyfish stinger called the nematocyst. There's actually a lot of animals that, that use these kinds of devices. But, I mean, you have to use a camera that's running at millions of frames a second to actually see this thing move. It's actually on a nanosecond timescale, but the whole thing is uh, the, the initial movement is done in, a, in one millionth of a second. That, that's pretty impressive. Wow. So just describe that. Is that the stinger coming out and going boom onto your skin? Yeah. And it's, so it's, you brush against the tip of this thing and the dart is pushed forward. It's under pressure. Then after this thing has actually punctured the skin, this sort of poisonous tube unwinds, and that's what actually delivers the toxin into our, our tissues and into our bloodstream. A millionth of a second. And I hate to admit that because we, we, I've studied fungal movements for a long time, and I always thought those were the fastest movements in nature, but I'm afraid the jellyfish actually has the fungi beat with that initial movement. And you describe all sorts of rapid-fire ballistics in nature, flinging and hurling and erupting and exploding and springing and catapulting and torpedoing, I should say. <laughs> yeah, I mean, absolutely. Nature is violently fast at these tiny scales. But, I mean, uh, fungi are up there. So describe what the quiet, humble mushroom hanging out on the forest floor is actually doing. Yeah, it's incredible. Isn't it? I think I, I, I'll say this, but then I, was, I think I'm making it up, but, but it is true. 30,000 spores a second, so 30,000 microscopic particles a second are falling from the cap of a mushroom. The spore uses a fast movement to really jump off the surface of the gill, powered by a tiny droplet of fluid that 
flows over the surface of the spore at, at an immense speed and it kicks it into the air. So that's it's one of these really extraordinary mechanisms that have evolved in the fungi. Plants operate at a much slower time scale and there's been all sorts of interesting, curious magical thinking and superstition and and wild claims about the movements of plants. And you talk about the molecular timekeeper in plants and their, their circadian dance with the, with the sun. What's going on that, that then takes us into the realm of hours? Plants follow, well, many organisms follow a circadian rhythm and all organisms really have got some inbuilt clock, some kind of molecular clock that they, they use. And, and most organisms are tracking the rotation of, of Earth. It's circadian rhythm, so something that's playing out on a 24-hour hour cycle. And it's really the accumulation of these, these efforts then that we, brings us to the timescale of, of weeks and, and, and months. And then we can get as far as years and think about circannual cycles. And you then step into the timescale of years in your, your chapter called Broods. And I love the story of, of the cicadas in North America, the periodical cicadas, which have a really unusual life cycle that gets played out through prime numbers. What a weird life they have. The periodical cicadas then in this part of the world, I mean, it's, it's a wonderful feature of North American biology, but there are some of these broods that that emerge every 17 years. We had one this summer during the pandemic. Found that the adults make, the the mating calls that they make make when they're in the trees, is it's astonishing. It's something that has to be experienced to be believed. These cicadas emerge en masse every 13 or 17 years. And this is, you know, played out across well, probably millennia. What's going on? Why, why two prime numbers like this? What's the cycle that they're in sync with? So the why question may be that it's, it's called the predator satiation strategy, where you, you, you come out in immense numbers and you completely overwhelm your predators such that they can't possibly destroy your population. And so there's still plenty of cicadas that get to mate and produce the eggs that will become the next uh, generation of, of cicadas. But how they actually measure this, this is, is really unclear. So they're actually tapping into tree roots. They're in the ground. They're a good, good few feet in, uh, under the soil surface, and they're feeding on tree roots you know, before they emerge. But how do they actually count to 17? We, we don't know the answer to that question. With the, the name of the cicada, too, is nice. Is the Latin name is Magi Cicada, because it's magical. We, we don't know. I mean, you describe this display as one of wild nature's last stands on a planet that's lost its greatest zoological extravaganzas. There's something incredibly moving to you, something incredibly precious about these these displays of millions of cicadas. Yeah, and we think about bison that uh, migrated through this part of the country. The last passenger pigeon in the world lived in the Cincinnati Zoo. We, we Ohioans did a pretty good job at wiping out passenger pigeons, which gathered in immense numbers, would, would darken the sky as they flew overhead in the early 19th century. So, yeah, but we got the, the cicadas are left. Yeah, I mean, I think at the heart of this book, it seems to me, is a challenge to our own myopia, our own 
a kind of inward gaze and self-obsession to consider what it would be like to sense and, and move and pulsate through the world as another species, another type of organism altogether. Is that, is that what you were trying to do? Yeah, get out of ourselves a little bit and think about the, our own lifespan in terms of the majesty of the rest of nature. There is more to life than our individual lives. And I wanted to try and explore that a little bit through some science and art in this book. Nicholas Money is joining me this week on Science Friction. He's author of Nature Fast, Nature Slow, How Life Works from Fractions of a Second to Billions of Years. We're speaking about challenging our own myopia, though. When you skip into the decades, timescale of decades, therein lies our self-obsession again and, and the question of life extension, and we'll get to that. But what are water bears or moss piglets, and, and why did we send them to space? Yeah, why do we send them to space? We don't really give them a choice, do we? Like so much of our ex- experimentation on animals. What are they? They are tough little mothers. They're very tough little animals. So they're, they're tardigrades is the technical term for water bears. So yeah, these are many of them are, are microscopic. They're all very small. They're these invertebrates, so animals without backbones, but they are incredibly tenacious, incredibly hardy. I mean, they do like look like little sort of piglets, don't they? They're like these little microscopic blobs with um, eight little telescopic legs and, and, and kind of blunt snouts. And as you describe it, they move like drunken campers trying to escape from the sleeping bags. But they're, they're weird little blobs. And they will dry out so they can lose most of their water content, which is something that we can't do and, and uh, be revived afterwards. But this is how they survive is by coping with this water loss. And then you can actually put them in a vacuum and you can expose them to a little bit of cosmic radiation. So this has been done on some on unmanned space missions. There's an Arctic species that was revived after being hard frozen for 30 years. So yeah, these are incredible little animals and they behave according to the sleeping beauty model of life extension that when they awake, it's as if time has stood still for them. They awaken much younger than their, I suppose, in a sense, their biological age. Um, if, if you keep them alive, they're not that impressive. If you, if you keep them I don't know, put them on a treadmill or whatever uh, water bear researchers do. They, they really only live for a relatively short period of time then, maybe a year or two. But you, you can extend their life by freezing them and drying them, drying them and freezing them, and then they can live, live for decades. People have looked at them and wondered, hmm, what can we learn from them and other creatures who seem to have this ability to go into some kind of hibernation or stasis and then be revived? I mean, well, 30 years later, decades later. So what has that inspired in terms of possibilities for humans? I mean, there are interests in life extensions such that so that we could you know, explore the outer planets and venture beyond. So in other words, we could go to space and kind of put ourselves on ice until we got there. What, what do hallucinogenic mushrooms have to do with all this? Yeah, yeah so there's, there's even been this the, the suggestion. So part, part of the issue too, in terms of life extension and maybe preserving astronauts for a very long journey in space is, it'd be very, very boring. I suppose at some point you'll run out of dreams. And so one thing would be that by taking hallucinogenic mushrooms, it would at least give people some kind of festivities in the brain while they they wild away the years as they rocket rocket beyond the solar system. But uh, no, and and also there's this interest, I mean, psychoactive mushrooms too, 
do provoke profound changes in brain activity. And so again, there's interest there since we, if we are going to do this, if we're going to actually conserve our bodily functions over some long period of time, maybe we can use hallucinogenic mushrooms to uh, slow brain activity, perhaps. Which is the most energy-intensive organ in our body, of course. I mean, it seems ridiculous to me, but uh, there you go. Let's leap to centuries, and that's where whales and actually a whole lot of incredible sea creatures enter the story. And I, I really didn't appreciate that a fillet of orange roughy on a dinner plate that people might buy down at the local fishmonger may have actually lived in the Pacific Ocean for over 150 years. That's young in the scheme of what we find in the ocean, though, isn't it? It's incredible, isn't it? There, there seems to be some qualitative difference, doesn't there, that we're eating an ancient animal. We have very accurate ways of, of measuring the age of, of sea creatures, and indeed, it seems that they can live for up to 150 years. It's something to do with the ear bones that you can you can actually measure age via looking at the ear bones, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's one of the methods. So there are ear bones called otoliths, and they form, it's a bit like um, measuring the age of a tree. Count the rings, and you can do this with these otoliths. But there's other methods too, like, you know, radiometric methods of dating. So is it true that there's a shark that lives to nearly 400 years old? There's the Greenland shark, Somniosus, that is up in the uh, northern hemisphere. Yeah, certainly over 300 years old. And they're very slow-moving creatures, absolutely beautiful. They've only actually captured decent video footage of these animals gliding you know, close to the seafloor quite recently. And so you can find those online. They're absolutely beautiful, large, large sharks too. But yeah, the oldest ones, maybe 300, more than 300 years old. Not as old as an edible clam. Ming the clam. Ming the clam. How old's Ming? Ming? Ming the clam was determined to be more than 500 years old after, of course, they fished it and, well, they pulled it up from the Icelandic shelf. And actually, they're measuring rings there too because the animals put down a new part of the shell each year. And so you can, you can very accurately determine the age of these clams. And they found this Paul Ming was more than 500 years old when it was collected some years ago. So that appears to be one of the oldest sea creatures. And the, one of the oldest individual animals of, of all time. Yep, absolutely. There is something though, isn't there, about the deep sea, living in the sea in very cold water and slow heart rate, lower metabolic rate, slow and steady wins the race. Speaking of Ming, who got you know, his life was ended or their life was ended. If we leap onto the millennia level, it's actually a pine cone tree that wins in the age stakes. And that was also taken down by, well, I think it was a forestry student, wasn't it? Yeah, isn't, isn't that amazing? Tragic so, yeah, story. The, the, the bristlecone pines that live in high elevations in states like California and Nevada mm. that, and, and Utah. And yes, there was this tree that was cut down by a forestry student many years ago. And Counting the annual rings, they found out this thing was, you know, five thousand years old. And uh, five thousand years old. Apparently, he never. So he, he knew that he was collecting, and that this was his research project to, to look at to, to determine tree age. But I mean, and, and published it was published in a peer-reviewed article. Then the the age of this tree. I mean, I suppose he could have taken a, a core sample and determined the age, but. He cut the whole tree down. Some kid. I don't know how he felt about that later in uh, life. There are a whole range of different plant examples, though, aren't there, of trees that seem to live for, for millennia. 
many millennia. I mean, there's the Pando colony of trees in Utah, which might be some estimate 80,000 years old. Is that true? Yeah, it's incredible, isn't it? So way back to the end of the last glaciation. I mean, they're at risk now. They're dying because of overdevelopment pressures and other things, probably climate change too. But how does a colony of trees live on for tens of thousands of years. So that takes us from the idea of an individual organism like Ming the clam to these colonies. So these are it's the quaking aspen, again, in, West, in the Western United States. So the individual stems, individual trees, as you look at them, they're, they're probably less than 100 years old, most of them. But the whole clone that's actually spread out through the root system over sometimes a vast area, we can track the growth rate of that clone, that colony over time, and it seems indeed that there's at least this Pando clone that might be as much as 80,000 years old. So dating to the end of the, at least the last time, the last glaciation of that part of North America. Incredible, isn't it? 80,000 years. To what extent is it under threat? Yeah, so it does seem that many of the tree, trees are in poor health. And this is related to, I mean, what we're seeing in the, in the Western United States now in the high elevations is a, is a real decrease in precipitation. It's probably part of a natural cycle, but it's just exacerbated by climate change and many attendant problems. In what ways are are ancient trees becoming, in a sense, climate beacons? Yeah, I mean, you see this see this globally. That I mean, there's a, the baobab trees. I mean, these are the oldest flowering plants, and some of those individuals are over two thousand years old um, in Madagascar. Um, yeah, they, they seem to be really suffering. I mean, these are all these plants are all drought resistant plants but you know when you get these profound changes in in rain, rainfall patterns over year after year after year even something as resilient as a um, as a baobab tree and other trees they're unable to to cope with this to respond to this and so we are finding or at least I'm reading that some of the oldest examples of these species are um, are not doing so well I was really struck Nick by something you said, you, you write, nobody questions the importance of conserving the pyramids of Egypt, and yet it's difficult to get people to care about the grizzled trees that were born at the same time in the Sierra Nevada, you know, those those wonderful big sequoias. And yet these incredible plants are probably, you know, they're dying every year. We're very narcissistic as a species, so um, at present company accepted. Humans are my least, uh, <laughs> least favourite species. I guess the deep time perspective of what evolves over billions of years is is perhaps the most intriguing to me. And this is where you really start to kind of delve into the question of what is life and where did life come from? And you, you start to kind of get a sense that life is chemistry, that we started at the scale of the, the single cell and then everything blossomed from that somewhere back in time. This is the, the, the greatest of mysteries. I mean, I'd say it's the greatest mystery in, in science. We know a great deal about the formation of the building blocks of life. We know a huge amount about the biochemical and metabolic mechanisms in the, in the simplest kinds of organisms. But actually understanding how that first cell was born, we're, we're, we're not, not very close at all. Or maybe we're really close and it just it requires a new way of thinking about the whole question of life's origins. How did that first cell developed. Once we can figure out how that first cell developed, everything else is child's play. Charles Darwin dealt with the rest of time, but figuring out an answer to that question. The elusive first cell billions of years ago. In writing this book that 
embraces all timescales across all of life in the middle of a pandemic. I wonder what that's been like for you and, and, and whether it's helped you in some way kind of get through what is really one of the most existential experiences we'll ever have. It does provide some perspective in, in the sense that as awful and as tragic as the suffering has been for many individuals, some obviously far more so than others, but in terms of the human population, this will be a blip on the chart. It's, it's immeasurably small. And I suppose over time, those of us that survive, will this will, this will fade into our memories too. I'm quite pessimistic about the future of, of Homo sapiens. Maybe I'm more hopeful that we might develop a more graceful relationship with the rest of nature as we understand our place in the great scheme of things. I suppose that's part of what this book is about too, is just situating us very clearly within the natural world. But I think we need to write our swan song. What is it that we want to to say about our experience as a species. What is it that we'd like to leave? What, what, are the, what will the aliens find? So on this timescale of billions of years, if aliens visit the planet and they say, well, look at the mess that they made here, what will be our epitaph, I suppose? It's a delicious read. Thank you so much for joining me, Nicholas Money. Oh, it was my pleasure. Great to talk with you. Professor Nicholas Money's book is called Nature Fast, Nature Slow, How Life Works from Fractions of a Second to Billions of Years. It's out now. I'm Natasha Mitchell. You can check out more info on the Science Friction website and you can email me from there too or catch me on Twitter at Natasha Mitchell. Love to hear from you. Bye. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.